From the Chronicle Podcast System, this is the September 22nd episode of SLP. SLP stands for Sheer Listening Pleasure, featuring your host, Neil Shear. In each episode, Neil offers his opinions and comments, speaks with his guests about dermatology, and, sometimes, one or two other passions. Support for the SLP podcast is provided by Leo Pharma Canada. Neil's guest today is Dr. Harvey Louie. Dr. Louis is the medical director at the Skin Care Center in Vancouver, the former head of the Department of Dermatology and Skin Science at UBC, and a well-known research figure and speaker, nationally and internationally. If you have a question for Neil or his guests, or want to be in touch at any time, just send an email to slp at chronicle.org. And if you attach a voice clip to your email, you never know, we might even use your question on an upcoming episode. And now, here's your host. The Derm Boss himself, Neil Shear. It is my true privilege and pleasure to be able to have a podcast with the amazing Dr. Harvey Louie. And Harvey Louie, for those who don't know him, is one of the leaders in dermatologists globally who has had every position of leadership, whether it's international, Canadian, local, etc. He's done it all. And there's so many things we can talk about. He's creative, an inventor, a discoverer, a scientist, a teacher, and all those things. So I want to start, Harvey, sort of at the beginning. And how did you end up in British Columbia? And part two is, how did you end up in dermatology? Well, the easy part is, how did I end up in British Columbia? That was a choice that my grandfather and my parents made because they're immigrants from China. So they came to this country and decided Vancouver was a cool place. And so that's where I was born. So that's how I ended up where I started, right? This was chosen for me and I liked it. And Canada and Vancouver have been very good to me over the years. So that's the answer to the first question. And the second, I didn't get bitten by the dermatology bug until... I was actually doing my internal medicine residency. So my pathway way back when was that you graduate from med school, then you could do a rotating internship, and then you could choose the residency of your choice. And you could switch back and forth between residencies. So I did my rotating internship, and then I went into internal medicine because I thought I had a career maybe in endocrinology or pulmonary medicine. Those were kind of two disciplines that I was very interested in. But during my internship, I did that in Victoria, and I worked with a fellow named Pat Kenny. And Pat is a wonderful dermatologist, and I did a rotation with him when I was in Victoria, and Pat made dermatology fun and interesting. And when you started your rotation, you did a one-week rotation with him. The reason I got rooked into doing that elective was when I was doing my electives during my internship, the program director said, well, what do you want to do for your electives? I said, well, I would like two more weeks of ICU and I'd like another two weeks of internal medicine. And he says, are you kidding me? And I said, well, this is what I'm interested in, right? And he says, no, if that's all you're going to do for the rest of your life, then you shouldn't do that. He says, I insist, I will only sign off if you do two weeks of derm and two weeks of outpatient gynae. And I said, you're going to kill me, you know, that's so boring, right? He said, no, that's all I'm going to sign you up for. And, you know, he did me a favor because when I did my one week rotation with Pat, he put this little blank sheet of paper on the door and he said, okay, we're going to keep track of every time you see a new diagnosis, you put a mark on the door and then we'll see at the end of the week, how many diseases you saw this week in this clinic. 
at the end of that week, I had seen 62 different diagnoses. And I thought, wow, this is amazing, you know, because when I went to, you know, shadow endocrinologist, I saw diabetes and thyroid disease, you know, two diseases, yeah. right, for two weeks. And this guy, you know, I saw 63 different things. It was very exciting and fun. I think a lot of times students get motivated by the role models they see, and they kind of project themselves into that person, whoever it may be, and they go, hmm, I think I could see myself doing what that person does. And, and I really enjoyed what Pat did. And I thought he was a cool physician. And I thought the discipline that he represented was very interesting. It didn't sink in or solidify until I started doing internal medicine, which I love. But I realized that if I was going to be an expert in something, I was going to have to choose something more narrow than internal medicine. And I'm one of these OCD type of people. When I want to do something, I want to do it very well. And I realized that if I was going to be really good at internal medicine, I was probably going to kill myself with all the studying and knowledge that I'd have to acquire. And I thought back about that dermatology experience and I realized, hey, this is a field that is fun, interesting, it's visual. You know, one of my hobbies is photography. And so I came back to that and I said, hmm, let's apply to dermatology and see what happens really something I can relate to. And I'm always amazed at the charisma of dermatologists in their interaction with patients and looking after diseases. And, you know, when you go from internal medicine into that, you think you know some medicine and you know stuff, and probably you'd say, I know some dermatology. And you see case after case that you had no idea what they were. And then the dermatologist says, oh, it's such and such just by looking at it. And it's just so engaging and so special. And I'm very glad that you went into dermatology. So I assume you don't regret it. Oh, not for a minute. You know, I never met in my training a dermatologist, you know, that I didn't like or a dermatologist that I didn't think enjoyed what they did. They, they loved it. And that was, I guess, for lack of a better word, inspiring and yeah. exciting. It's a specialty that there's a lot of camaraderie and a lot of collegiality in dermatology. We love talking about cases and we love sharing cases. And that's the amazing thing about being with this group of people. How did all of this lead to you doing the kind of research and innovative type of studies and technologies and all that sort of part of your career, which has been, again, global and there's just so much, I wouldn't even be able to go into it. But, you know, here you are going from being this happy dermatology clinician to somebody who's then going down to the basement and doing some hardcore research? Well, I think it's a couple of things. One is a great mentorship and role models. And then the second is finding a niche within dermatology that suited my interests and my capabilities. So in terms of the second, I am a very mathematical equations oriented kind of person, you know, kind of like you, Neil, I mean, your background is in engineering and, you know, we like order, we like models and we like predictability. And when I was starting dermatology, I liked the beauty of it in terms of the imagery and, you know, the visual recognition, but there wasn't enough equations in that. So I talked to David sure. McLean, who was our program head back then. And he said, well, you know, you should consider a career in academia. And I said, well, I, I guess I could, but how do I marry my interest in equations and physics and math with dermatology, which is more visual? And he said, well, what about photomedicine? There's lots of physics and lots of equations and stuff like that. And so I went to actually an AAD weekend course 
on photodermatology when I was a first year resident. And I thought, hey, this is cool. There's some very interesting stuff about wavelength, energy, irradiance, light sources. And, and I thought, I think I found my niche. I think I found what I, I could do. So luckily for me, I had people like David rooting for me and he knew people at various places and he had helped me make connections. So I think, you know, there's no such thing as a self-made person in medicine. You're the result of the people that you have interacted with and the people who have opened doors for you. And then if you have some ability, then that's uh, even better. But I very much owe my career and, and all of the things that I do now to the inspiration I got from people like David or Stu Madden from the past. That really makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's a field that when you think about hot topics now, so people are going in to do surgical, they're doing cosmetic, and here you're going into something that's pretty hardcore medical, but also very hardcore science. And there are too few people still doing that kind of research, I think. Cheryl Rosen's been very active, but you know, as, as you go on over time, it's been harder and harder. I trained under Colin Ramsey, who that was his background. I never got turned on to it. <laughs> I, I was much more interested in other areas, but it is funny, you know, you need to this kind of exposure and to have people are going to encourage you and support you. And I certainly found that globally. So in global type of networks that you've been involved with, how did you get into that in a way that you were comfortable, became president of the worldwide programs? Again, it's another stage, you know, so you've done all this stuff, become a dermatologist, you become an expert in a technology, uh, you even can, you know, make the technology sellable, you do all these wonderful things, and then you get into a global arena where the issues are so diffuse and broad. How did you manage to pull all that off? I think it was twofold. One, again, I'd come back to mentorship and people that I got to know and work with. And the second is exposure through pharma. Quite frankly, you know, people like Stu Madden, David McLean, very well-traveled, very well-versed in politics and dermatology and globalism, really. They were globalists before that became a buzzword. But the other thing is I work with pharma on a number of different projects, uh, psoriasis, photodynamic therapy. And as you know, when you work with pharma, you get exposed to the technology, the drugs, regulatory issues, and marketing, promotion, clinical trials, and you get the ability to travel. So quite frankly, I worked on a number of pivotal clinical studies and then was traveling the world with the societies that I worked with and, you know, photo medicine and PDT, but also with pharma and got to meet a whole bunch of interesting people from different countries. And I realized it's not just dermatologists in Canada who are cool and fun and interesting and love their job is dermatology around the world is like that everywhere you go. And the more I met people, the more I realized they're just kind of like us, but you know, to be able to combine our interests in skin with traveling and meeting different people was very exciting and very enticing. And the more you get to meet people, the more you realize they're just like you. And then the opportunities kind of mushroom from there because there's lots of opportunity if you go seek it. Well said. I, I agree with you. I think we're very lucky that we've been able to do that, which I guess leads me to a question about a few things, but one is about the world now with COVID and speaking to trainees and people are interested in medicine and even trying to go up through medicine. Uh, you know, they're saying, well, we don't do this. We don't do that. And my answer is, but that's your whole generation is going to be 
quite different. Whatever you signed up for two or three years ago is not going to be what's going to be five or six years from now. And everything, like you mentioned about travel and interactions and all these are going to be very different. What's your perspective on where you think you see your trainees going through? What is COVID doing and what's going to be following this? Yeah, I think it's going to be a very different world in terms of the practice of medicine. I think COVID, COVID itself won't change what the future will be. What COVID is doing is it's accelerating everything. So whatever is going to happen was probably going to happen anyway, quite frankly. It's just we hit the fast forward button and we're zipping through all of this much more quickly than we thought we would. So whether it's electronic medical records or artificial intelligence, medical education, the future is unfolding very quickly. But I think the challenge for us is trying to figure out which parts of the future are the parts that we should embrace and which are the parts that we should be a bit concerned about and kind of say, well, you know, that was an experiment and maybe that part was worth doing, but this part is definitely not worth doing and things like that. So the COVID itself, I don't think has changed the face of dermatology except to accelerate everything. And the other thing that I think dermatologists are coming to the realization is that we don't own knowledge anymore. It used to be that the knowledge was what we possess, and that's what we brought to the table in the healthcare system, right? Our knowledge of the skin, our knowledge of treatment, our knowledge of how to look at something and make a diagnosis. That gift or that special skill is actually translatable to the general public now, and they own the knowledge, and they can access this just as easily as we can. And I think we're going to have to go through a phase where we figure out, well, what is going to be our role and how will we help people and how will we guide people rather than how will we be in charge of the medical system? We're going to be like special concierges, if you will, to guide people through the system so that they can choose the best options and get the best outcomes according to what their priorities are. And, and I think that kind of mindset needs to change for us. It brings me back to one of our CBA meetings, and I'd invited a woman from Toronto as a PhD, and, and her sort of title is she's a futurist. And at the time, it was sort of entertaining to hear how the world is now and how it's going to be in the future. And she broke it down very thoughtfully, and I was really impressed. The one thing that really changed my life was when she basically gave me permission that I could make assessments on people, and maybe I missed a melanoma. And it was sort of a lead into the idea of what a virtual care was, that we have to sort of give away some stuff and say, yeah, you know what, we're not going to be perfect and we're going to have to do things. When we got into the COVID virtual clinics type of idea, all of this came back and it's like, wow, everything she said, which sounded like it was going to be, who knows, a hundred years in the future, if it ever happened, suddenly happened like right away. And so people were ready for it. They were making it happen. And here we are just getting on it. But I think dermatology uh, for virtual care for me, people say, well, you can't see the patient, but I've seen people who come in from maybe two hours away and they have to bring their dad who's on dialysis. And if they can stay in their home and I can just take care of them in their home, nobody's going to want to come to my hospital and spend three hours looking for a parking spot when they could just have done this on the telephone or on some other kind of connection. So I agree with you. It's an exciting time, but I think, you know, people have to recognize or in training that this is going to be what we're seeing in the future. And hopefully we can keep up with it. Do you think there are pitfalls? I think we've seen a lot of positive changes because of this and they were natural they were evolving. It was accelerated. Are you worried about certain aspects of it? 
Yeah, there's a few areas that I think give me pause. Uh, one is in the area of telemedicine. We've gone all in on telemedicine, right? The, the lockdowns mandated it. So in a sense, there's actually an opportunity. You know, we're about to kind of submit an ethics proposal to our university to look back during the time of the lockdown. And it was a fun, exciting time because it was something new and different. Telemedicine actually worked because... If you phoned people or contacted them, they had to be at home. So it was like they had no excuse, right? Everyone was working from home. So it was actually quite efficient. You can get quite a lot done. But there were things that I always felt uncomfortable with, with certain types of cases, especially new cases, new diagnoses or patients I never met before. And so I think what we're hoping to do is go back through our charts and go back through our cases and say, okay, well, which kind of diagnoses what kind of cases did the telemedicine actually lead to an actionable outcome that helped the patient and didn't require further follow-up or whatever? And which were the kind of cases that said, oh, I actually have to see you in the office. And I think there are probably going to be patterns there. It's clear that if you've got a patient who has got psoriasis and on immunosuppressive therapies or biologics, and you know them well, they know you well, virtual care is perfect for that kind of situation because there's a high level of trust in what the assessment's going to be because you know the patient, you know what to expect. And dragging a patient to come into your office for the 45 seconds that you need or even 30 seconds that you need to look at the patient and then the rest is kind of social, that could probably be pushed onto virtual. So there are clear instances where it's a no-brainer that virtual is the right way to go. The other situation, though, is the patient referred to you with uh, multiple nevi, and yeah, the patient can take a few pictures of this spot and that spot. Mostly they're out of focus, but you can't do a survey of their whole skin. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of misgivings about asking a patient to stand in front of their webcam or whatever and start disrobing in front of me. I think there's some boundary issues there that are pretty important to respect. And really, the technology just isn't good enough for doing that type of work. So I think over time, we will probably come to guidelines for which types of cases or which types of diagnoses or which types of clinical problems are well-suited to telemedicine, and then which types of cases really demand an in-office visit. Yeah, I think we learned a lot when we were doing telemedicine and the kind of situation where I'm seeing people maybe from way up in Northern Ontario can't come in. But still, it was just a conversation. Whenever they went to show me pictures, even as technology improved, one, it's maybe selecting the one thing that doesn't matter. And two, it was terrible quality. So actually speaking to people just verbally without actually even seeing them was better in a way because I wasn't tormented by that. But we are getting better and we're not going to be able to do everything, but we do have to manage it. It's exciting in a way. I just be nice that we could get out and socialize again a little bit and maybe even get brave enough to travel but it's certainly a very scary time. I want to talk about a few other subjects. And one is, you and I did have a very nice conversation. I thank you for it about skin of color and what's happening in education. And that top of mind, what are your major directions now? We're seeing finally journals are recognizing that different skin colors make a difference. And uh, there's a tsunami of papers coming out on that. Some are maybe changing uh, things and some aren't, but there's certainly a lot of options there, but you're certainly involved and very aware of all of this. What do you see coming with skin of color? What do we need to do? 
Yeah, I mean, it's obviously uh, long overdue and it's like the great awakening when we look back on this, just like Botox revolutionized dermatology and lasers revolutionized dermatology or whatever. Mm. We're going to look at this and say, yeah, this was the time when we realized that we had not paid enough attention to issues related to skin of color. So it's here to stay and that's a good thing. And oodles and oodles of projects. Uh, I mean, everyone's tripping over themselves you know, on an academic basis, on a clinical basis and all this to look at skin of color. So I think it's a good time. The area that we're trying to work on with our research group is in the area of imaging and creating resources for teaching skin of color. The one thing I would kind of say that I don't think has been said yet, a little bit of a mini rant of mine, speaking as a photobiologist now, everyone is kind of conflating Fitzpatrick skin phototypes with skin of color. And as a photobiology purist, you know, I kind of cringe and pull up my hair every time I hear people talking about Fitzpatrick skin types and then equating that with how you define different types of skin color. It's really kind of interesting that Fitzpatrick, you know, and a white Irishman from New England, he designed the skin phototype system mainly to help guide the choice of light fluences, the starting dose for PUVA. That was essentially why Fitzpatrick did that, right? And he had four systems initially, remember? There was only four. And, you know, then someone said, hey, well, what about the dark people? And they go, oh, yeah, I guess we should think about that. So if you look at the scale, the Fitzpatrick skin type one to four only depend on whether you tan or burn. Those are the criteria. But then when you look at five and six, it has nothing to do with tanning and burning. It just has to do with the degree of darkness. So from a scientific point of view, this is a very poorly designed scale system. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it was politically motivated or whatever, or tried to be inclusive, but it's actually very unscientific because you've got the first four are based on phenotype of burning and tanning. The last two are based purely on skin color. But over time, you see, everyone's equated the one to six Fitzpatrick skin type with degree of color of skin. And that actually is quite incorrect. But it annoys me because I'm a purist. I don't know what we can do to fix it, but people don't really understand Fitzpatrick skin typing as far as I'm concerned when they talk about this. That's a great project. There's a lot of stuff to do there. It'd be fun to talk more about that. It is nice to hear literally shining a light in a dark place where yeah. you sort of say, what are you talking about? This makes no sense. And, and knowing the history does matter. I just, I want to sort of start moving to a close. And I want to ask you about what you think. You've talked a lot about the future, but Generally, any things you would like to just add? So what's coming up that you really see also as being a hot topic? I think the thing that's going to become more and more of an issue over time for our specialty and our discipline and our colleagues is the issue of who is going to handle what. And what I'm talking about there is the phenomenon of subspecialization in dermatology. That's actually a very good thing. And I know that when we've recruited faculty members to our department, you know, we always like to say, okay, well, you know, you can be a great dermatologist, but what's your area of focus? Because, you know, we'd like you to become an expert at something or help to discover new knowledge and applications, right? So that subspecialization is a good thing. But what I'm noticing now is that a lot of people, when they practice, they go, well, I won't do hair, or I don't do this, where I only do that. Now, it's not so much that they specialize in something, it's what they don't want to do. And that kind of concerns me because in all of medicine, we don't have enough generalists. And I do worry that this phenomenon where 
people don't view general dermatology as being important or as being worthy of their clinical time and expertise, that distresses me a bit because, you know, in the past, we, we were trained to do pemphigus and bullous pemphigoid and dermatomyositis, right? But nowadays, that which I was taught to do and trained to do and, and did an exam to be able to do is now called complex medical dermatology, as if that should only be handled by certain people instead of if you're a dermatologist, you should handle all of that. So I'm concerned on one hand that this unwillingness or lack of interest in doing certain types of dermatology is going to harm us and it's going to harm patients because there aren't enough of us still, despite the growing number of residents. And then you know, knocking at the door are the other generalists, the real generalists in medicine, you know, family physicians, uh, nurse practitioners who say, well, you know, if you're not going to do this dermatology, we will. And we're happy to become experts and we're happy to provide this level of service if there is a need. And if the dermatology community can't handle this, then someone needs to and will fill this void. And I think there's going to be some shifts in what happens over time and it's going to be awkward and uncomfortable. But I think we're seeing grumblings of that over the last few years, as you know, with CDA and people concerned about what dermatology is and does and who can call themselves a dermatologist. But at the same time, many of our colleagues are saying, well, I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do windows and, you know, whatever, right? So that to me is uh, something that I think is going to become a bigger challenge for us and uh, we're going to need some creative thinking to solve that. Thank you for that incredible insight. I think there's, it's complex, but I do agree with you. Shift happens and we have to be prepared for it. At least our specialty does. And maybe specialties will disappear. You know, you just wonder people keep putting up different shingles with different types of titles. And you think, I've never even heard of that before. What is that? So it's really an interesting insight into the future. Thank you so much, Harvey. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate for all you've done. You've been a good friend for so many years and such a great leader in dermatology. I think even as a specialty, we have to thank you for all of that and for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you very much, Harvey. It's been a real pleasure and just a joy. And every time I talk with you, I always leave I know, charged up, inspired, and I see things in a different way that I wish I had seen before and don't know how I missed that. So thank you and, and keep up the good work. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed on today's podcast, or if you're looking for previous episodes, visit www.derm.city. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. On our next podcast, Neil will welcome another guest from the world of dermatology. To subscribe, go to www.derm.city or find the SLP podcast at Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for the SLP podcast was provided by Leo Pharma Canada. Send your comments to slp at chronicle.org. The podcast producer was Jeremy Visser. John Evans and Kylie Rebenick provided research. Sound engineering was by Marcus Tumpain. This is Vivian Volpe. Until next time, be well.